Well, good morning. I thought I'd talk about uh, something specific, but it would also relate to everything else we've been talking about. What I thought I would explain, because it was new to me when I first was told about it, and upon a little research, I understand why. Uh, long story short, I'm talking about TWIM, Tranquil Wisdom Insight Meditation. This is um, the practitioner, the proponent, or the mouthpiece for this is Bhante Vimala Ramsi and his Mahatera. So this is what he says. Um, You'll find on the internet, not very much, uh, but there's one video that says uh, 2016, Bhante Vimala Ramsi, uh, his journey to Twim and the missing step to meditation. So, of course, I clicked and said, what? Missing step? Just to see if it was something that I had maybe seen. But he says uh, he discovered the method of Twim, Tranquil Wisdom Insight Meditation, when he took the Maj. Jima Nakaya, so the middle length discourses. It says here the earliest Buddhist teachings and words of the Buddha. There's actually earlier, but he brought him to Thailand and spent three months in a cave with a cobra as a roommate. Oof, that one's a little tough. To, yeah. He said, trying for himself the meditation just as it was written in the suttas, adding the missing step he found. Hint, the word is tranquilize. And I'll tell you, hint, no. It's Shamatha. He's translating Shamatha as tranquilize. And he's not wrong, but it was never, ever a missing step. Because if you read just about any um, sutta, or honestly, if you read just about anything on Buddhism, they're going to talk about this. But if you watch the video, you'll understand where this confusion comes from. He was just coming off a two-year retreat in Burma where he was taught vipassana, vipassana, alone, and not the emphasis on shamatha, at least not the way it should be. They are two sides of a coin. You cannot have insight without calmness. You can't have, uh, what does he call, uh, well, he calls it insight, um, without the tranquil. Okay, let me give you an example. The other thing you'll find online is it looks like it's it's a well done um, uh, cliff notes to Twim. It says a crash course, crash course in wisdom insight meditation. I'll give you one example. They start with radiating meta to oneself. Yes, I've explained this. I find in the Mahayana there isn't enough. Um, concentration on taking care of yourself. But here's the first mistake. Metta. Alone? No. No, it goes on later, and I'll read. Uh, he says, radiating metta to a special friend. So, to oneself, important. To a special friend, important. Problem is, he jumps on to the next step. The third instruction of six R's, which is a great instruction. But it isn't till the next step or even no step at all, it just talks about deepening the practice where it talks about jhana, the Brahma-viharas, insight, and nibbana. Well, I'm sorry. There is no metta without the uh, Brahma-viharas. They're called the divine abodes, uh, the uh, boundless passions or boundless energies. Or in his, his case here, he 
translates them as sub- sublime abodes, which absolutely, sure, sure. Um, but you can't have meta without compassion. You can't have empathetic joy without, right? They all go together, right? As I've explained before, metta, which is loving kindness, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, which is empathetic joy, and upeka, which is equanimity. And he finally gets into it because, again, jhana revolves around these. The Brahma-viharas are a package, right? So again, the first problem is you can't have metta without, well, you can't have loving-kindness, metta, without compassion, karuna. You can't have it without um, equanimous joy because, or what I like is empathetic joy. So how can you be somewhere, and I see it all the time, and someone gets, and you don't. I mean, you need to be equanimous in this. Not just happy for them, but you're still a little spiteful. No, you must be happy for them, and that's it, full stop. So the first problem is applying metta alone. The second problem is I really do like when they mention about the spiritual friend, but really they should be uh, defining it 100% wholly as everybody, Right? Kind of like in uh, the Vedanta sense, treating everybody as the Holy Mother. But I do like the third instruction. I do not at all. And I think this is why it's become popular. So what he says is you sit there, and of course you should follow the breath and you're paying attention, but what you're doing here is just applying metta. But what happens when these thoughts come up? His instructions are to use the 6R method, to recognize, release, relax, re-smile, return, and repeat. So it's a little silly to put this stuff together like this because it's all recognize the intention has drifted away from the meditation object. So if you're uh, thinking of, and it's difficult because it's hard to apply metta without other abstract thoughts. So again, this is why the beginner practice is the breath. So you focus on the breath. If the mind begins to wander, you recognize that your attention has drifted from your object of meditation. In this case the breath. The next R is release. So release your attachment to the distracting thought or sensation simply by letting it be, withdrawing attention from it. When you stop feeding the distraction with attention and energy, it will dissipate on its own. There's another mistake. No, you recognize that your attention has been pulled away. To release your attachment to a thought, you must use the dependent origination of thought or insight. You must remain calm because, say, if it's a a stressing uh, thought or emotion, uh, you must remain calm, obviously. But you look at the insight. But there's another aspect that a lot of people don't understand. You also must remain calm, shamatha, tranquil, because, say, if you do begin to realize uh, the inherent uh, emptiness of oneself, that it's can also be a little stressful. The third is relax. Again, I just explained this. You must remain calm. That's the shamatha. Translated as relax or tranquil, it's up to you. But what I like about this is he explains this idea. And again, I've explained this. Vipassana or insight practice must, must also have shamatha because here we go. Relax is the third R. 
because any remaining tightness and tension in the body, heart, or mind caused by the distraction. So yes, shamatha, because when you use insight, if it's a troubling emotion, if you have a hard time applying it, or at advanced, deeper levels, if you achieve the, uh, the insight, that itself will require relax. But what I like for a beginner is when your um, attention has drifted, your posture sometimes may have drifted, or your focus on your breath, or your um, proper breathing, right? So for me, I really like that idea, right? To go back and revisit the body, right? So start with a body scan, bring one's focus to the breath, um, recognize when the attention has um, drifted, release your attachment by using the dependent origination and the emptiness of all things, using insight and shamatha. So relaxation, calmness, insight, tranquility, uh, concentration, any of these words you choose, but just stay calm and focused and realize that this thought or emotion or uh, concern or what it may be, even a happy thought that's distracting. If it comes up, just recognize it. Uh, if you have, as I said, sometimes it's tough to just go, oh, there's a thought. I'm not going to attach to it and let it go because it can either be difficult to release or troubling uh, the thought itself. So that's why I like that idea of relax. So relax the remaining tightness and tension of the body, the heart, and the mind. So return to that body scan to make sure that your posture is correct, but also that you're remaining focused, calm, right? The fourth R is nice because it says re-smile. I like that. It's uh, it says, restore a small smile to the lips and your eyes and your heart with the happy feeling of loving kindness. And, and that's the idea. I would actually talk about equanimity, right? Loving kindness is awesome. But the idea here is to apply this uh, universally and without uh, prejudice or preference, right? So loving kindness um, is great. Uh, I personally would say, uh, re-smile, and again, this idea to once again return to, or what do they say, drop into awareness. But what is this awareness, this big awareness, or um, uh, what they might call uh, rig, rigpa, just an awareness of a universal self, or, you know, uh, that is where I think the true smile comes from, because... If you strictly try to apply a smile with loving kindness, there, there's this Western uh, self-loathing thing that just makes it difficult. So that's why I love the equanimity. Because you can either, if you are self-absorbed, you can apply that um, loving kindness to oneself. If you are um, externally absorbed uh, with the uh, liberation of other sentient beings, you can apply it there. But it doesn't limit that application to one or the other, right? You can flow between the two, as is the teaching. So I think that's good. Uh, the fifth is return. So that's when you bring your attention back to the meditation object. I like that. Um, I probably would switch. I uh, would relax, uh, return focus, and then re-smile. 
Uh, the final is sixth, and he calls it repeat. This st- series of steps, where whenever the mind becomes distracted and loses its meditation object. Exactly. That's why I always say that the biggest missed term, not shamatha, no, that's never missing in any of this, I'd say satisampajana. Satisampajana, I translate as, are you paying attention to morality, ethics, and the dependent origination of everything, that the self isn't the center of the universe, and that's where this dissatisfaction, this suffering all flows. Are you being mindful of that? Are you remembering that? Sati, right? Shmirti. Shmirti in uh, Sanskrit. And Sampajana, right? Right, Sama. Pajana. Are you being uh, mindful? Are you? It's to remind you. So everyone talks about mindfulness as the practice. It's not. The real daily, everyday practice would as I've said before, either be sati patipati, or more specifically, now that I'm going back and translating these for myself, sati sampajana, or simply sampajana, right? So it's, are you being mindful, sati? And again, to not only return, not only to repeat, but to recognize whether you're still being mindful correctly. Because how often... Do you actually have to use that to recognize when you're not focusing on your meditation object? How many times have you found yourself distracted, but wholly focused intently on the distraction? Not properly, right? You're not seeing the dependent origination, but you start tracking things and thinking about, oh, yes, I got to do this. And if I go to the store, hey, I can grab this. Or even something as simple as an insight. If you... And I find that the most difficult. If I have a realization or an understanding, I find it (laughs) nearly impossible to let that thought, that idea go. Because the goal is not to attach to anything, no matter what it might be. Uh, And then, uh, as I said, you can go and take a look at the... uh, Majima Nikaya is monstrous. I mean, I also doubt whether you could bring the entire thing. But if you did, here I'll give you an example. Uh, the ninth is called the Samaditi Sutta. And I've done a, a podcast on this. This is the uh, right or correct speech or view. I apologize. The right view. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, you have to have the correct view. That's the beginning. So what is the correct view? The Four Noble Truths, I kind of explained this, right? When you understand the origin of suffering to be birth and death and grief, what is the origin of suffering? It's craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight in lust, delight in this and that, that is craving for sensual pleasures. We've talked about this. This is kamachando. Uh, specifically means a desirous attachment. So anything. Uh, In this case, we're talking delights, lust, craving uh, for somatic pleasures, the, uh, the body, the senses. Craving for being and craving for non-being, right? This idea is twofold. You don't crave... Uh, for samsara, this existence, this uh, life that we live, this suffering. 
but you also don't crave for non-being because uh, either is yearning, is attachment, is, is desire, is uh, lust, as they say. This is called the origin of suffering. So what is cessation of suffering? It goes on. Again, I'm reading right from uh, the Samaditi Sutta. It is the rem- uh, remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of that same craving. That is called cessation of suffering. And in what way leading to cessation of suffering? So the noble eightfold path, that is right view, right concentration. That is the way leading to cessation of suffering. And then he goes on and talks about what is the right view. The right view is what we've talked about here, right? That's the problem. If you go and read and you leave the complete uh, Brahma Vihara till the end, and sadly, one of the final little comments at the very end of this short primer on this practice is to deepen your practice, and I'll quote here, it says, to accelerate the process of insight even further, you should study dependent origination and try to see how this progression plays out in your own mind and how the relaxed step breaks the chain. No. I mean, you can't apply any of the above without uh, at least um, beginning to understand the importance of dependent origination. This is not something that you can practice uh, all the other steps, but you know, eventually maybe you can start adding in dependent origination because That's what the Four Noble Truths are. The Four Noble Truths are talking about the self, but they're also talking about all phenomena, right? All Dhamma. That's why it's important we understand that Dhamma is not just the teaching, it's not just the path, but it's all phenomena. Thoughts, feeling, action, um, even objects, this idea that nothing is permanent, therefore, this is this idea of dependent origination. So nothing is what we perceive it to be, and it's also never going to last. And you can kind of see how this is all absolutely dependent upon applying these principles. So I just wanted to give a little overview. Um, I find it's not a bad practice, Um but uh, there was a few little things I thought I'd share uh, while I talked about this. Uh, again, no practice is wholly wrong because there is no individual practice for everybody. It's a very individual path, so you have to take from different uh, teachings. Again, just like in school, have you ever taken, um, say, for example, biology from a couple of different teachers and see how they teach differently. I mean, I know that's, I know, a personal example because I had two different biology teachers. Uh, one of them made me incredibly passionate about biology and taught uh, his students very well. Uh, and another one just bored everybody to the point where, I mean, dropout rates were really high, but really nobody was learning um, the content. Because uh, of his style. Well, now, okay, I'm being extreme. Not that nobody, but uh, my point was that everybody learns differently. So for me, the way I learn, uh, I didn't learn from a teacher who spent all day writing on the blackboard and then said, okay, there you go, have a nice day. I really enjoyed a teacher that uh, was kind of, uh, you know, 
used reciprocity in his teaching method, right? Making sure, of course, that the students were learning, uh, but also including them. But neither here nor there. I thought you'd enjoy that. So have yourself an awesome Monday.